This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. In the United States, numbers are not good. There is conflicting information about to wear a mask, to not wear a mask. What is going on there? Joining us now for that update, Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So the numbers in the U.S., the latest ones anyway, show that this COVID-19 situation is on a very bad trajectory. Uh, It is. uh, There are roughly one million cases, just over one million reported cases in the world, and a quarter of those cases are now in uh, the United States. New York's numbers will probably come out sometime in the next couple of hours, but the state as of right now has 93,000 reported cases, 2,500 deaths linked to the virus, uh, and the number of states that are quickly starting to uh, elevate uh, are uh, doing so at an alarming rate. New Jersey, 25,000 cases. California, 11,000 cases, Michigan, 10,000 cases. This is a virus that is throwing this country for a loop right now. Sure sounds like it. And people seem to be getting some conflicting information, too, depending on what state they live in about what they should be doing. Yeah, I mean, look, some states have no recommendations in place when it comes to uh, limiting social gatherings in public spaces. Uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, uh, parts of Iowa and Arkansas, no rules in place. Some states are doing it later than others. Georgia and Florida just putting their uh, social distancing requirements in place for people to stay at home. Georgia's governor said he only learned within the last 24 hours that you could actually spread this virus if you were asymptomatic, despite oh, the fact that this has been going on for months. Gosh. And it should be noted, the CDC is in Brian Kemp State, and he still didn't have the information. Oh, boy. Okay. And then you've got the mayor of Miami begging the president in a letter to ask him to shut down Miami's airport. Well, and look, this is a, a, a kind of a, an ongoing battle between the president and states as to how air travel is going to be dealt with. The president says it's impossible for him to shut down all airlines. He can't simply just tell all states to stop allowing plates, uh, planes to come in. He does have rules that can limit the number of flights that could come in. Uh, but Florida's governor is simply saying, look, we don't want these people coming into our state uh, from out of state because it puts an older population at risk. Worth knowing, Florida only put social distancing guidelines in place 48 hours ago, and they have been behind the ball for weeks now, putting their own residents at risk. Okay, and what is going on with this debate about mask, no mask? Well, so this is something that we're expecting to hear the Trump administration put some guidelines out, possibly today, possibly uh, into this weekend. The CDC is saying, go, if you're going to spend any time outside, it is recommended that you cover your face up, because we're now understanding that this virus can spread through breathing and talking, which puts more and more people at risk. So they're saying, put something over your face, a scarf, a homemade mask, something that's cloth that can at least shield you uh, uh, in a mild manner, but don't use regular masks because they're in short supply. Uh, The issue that we're running into now from people is that there's confusion, giving them a false sense of security, saying, well, if I have a mask on, maybe I can start hanging around people. Uh, And because there's no national guideline in place right now, it's just, you know, New York and L.A. Mm -hmm. doing this. It's leading to further confusion, saying, well, if we're doing it, why aren't the middle America states doing it? Yeah. And that seems very odd that you have this kind of disproportionate response right across the country. Well, and it's because there has been mixed messaging coming from the top. The president will say something, and then his health advisors like Dr. Fauci will say another thing. Look, Dr. Fauci was just on Fox News within the last half hour, and he was you know, trying to shut down the Fox News hosts because they were essentially leading uh, questions down the wrong line. And, and mm. Dr. Fauci had to say, well, look, what you're saying right now is incorrect. This is how you say it, but he's got to walk a delicate line here because you don't want to get in front of the president's messaging. Otherwise, you find yourself in front of an exit door. And what is happening with Dr. Fauci? I understand that he's getting security protection now? 
he's been getting some death threats uh, based what? on the information that he's been given. Look, when I just said that he was on Fox News, there were people that were report uh, that were replying on Twitter calling Dr. Fauci, uh, you know, expletive names uh, because they didn't like that he was giving fact-driven data and kind of making people feel small. Uh, but this is what science and data does, and this is what happens when you've had an administration for three years push science and data to the side to allow alternative facts to come forward. And now, when the real news is hitting home, uh, the 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 people who are delivering that message are finding themselves in front of a fire line here because people simply are terrified and don't want to hear what the actual real news is. One of the other things I've heard, Reggie, which seems quite alarming, is that there is this, some people in the States do have this mentality of this is hurting too much, therefore we should just let it go. Well, and that was kind of a message that we originally heard, uh, you know, fr- from Britain when, when uh, yeah. Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson had said, look, we'll just let everybody get sick and everybody will go back to normal. And you realize you can't just let this go. You can't just uh, kind of let a-, a-, a pandemic run its way through a country because you end up with the worst case scenario, which is what experts have been saying could kill upwards of two, possibly three million people. Look, we're looking at best case scenarios right now of a quarter million Americans dying from this virus simply because they acted too late in getting measures put in place. So if you just let this roll and let it kind of run its course, you run the risk of crippling your country, both in an economic way and in a health crisis way. No kidding. Okay, so then what is next then? What's happening today? Well, we're going to hear from the president today, possibly getting those guidelines from the CDC uh, and letting people know whether or not masks should be worn when we go outside. We'll hear from the governor of New York, give the updated numbers, which is going to uh, push the American numbers higher than they are right now, possibly to the other side, likely to the other side of 250,000 reported cases. We'll also get more of this back and forth over the national stockpile that's depleting. Jared Kushner took to the podium yesterday and said, oh, "Oh, look, the president got a phone call from his friends in New York. They said they're running out of supplies, uh, so we sent it to them. So there's going to be some pushback being, well, if the president's you know, only listening to his friends, what does that say for the other healthcare systems now across the country? Oh, boy. Okay, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Uh, that press conference yesterday with Jared Kushner was uh, wackadoodle. Like, it was nuts, where he actually said the federal stockpile is a federal stockpile. It's not for the states. Well, then who is it for? It's the same people out there. So, yeah, not great numbers coming from the U.S. This is CKNW Mornings. You know, there still may be quite a few for sale signs on homes out there. I'm sure you've seen some. But what is the likelihood right now for the actual sale of those homes, given everything else that's happening? A month ago, it was a different story, right? It seemed like sales were just about to take off. I mean, I certainly saw evidence of that in my neighborhood. Three houses went up for sale, three houses sold within two weeks. But now COVID-19 has changed everything. Let's talk more about that now. Cameron McNeil joins us with McNeil Lalonde and Associate Real Estate Services. Thank you so much for being here, Cameron. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. Tell me, what are you seeing out there right now with the market? Uh, well, you know, I've just listened to all your news headlines, and, and uh, I think all but one is uh, is is somehow related to this incredible uh, uh, COVID situation that, that that we're in at the moment. And, and of course, it's a global situation. Um, and it has now um, uh, hit all sectors of, of the economy and, and has also now hit the real estate market. So we are seeing um, more than just signs of it. We're seeing um, a, a significant slowdown in, in overall sales uh, activity at the tail end of the March um, figures that we track. 
Right. It, it, but it was picking up though, wasn't it? Like I feel like February had been shaped, more listings came on the market and there seemed to be some yeah, activity. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have to go back to 2016, 17 to really kind of understand our real estate patterns. We had, as you recall, a very hot market in, in 2016, 17. Yeah. The NDP um, uh, provincial government put in some some initiatives that were a catalyst to, to a, quite a, a sharp cooling of the real estate market. And um, it, the market was, was, was in a, quite a slump from the summer of 2018 right through to the summer of 2019 from the summer of 2019 right through to February we saw an uh, increasing market and February was a real spike over um, the previous year mm-hmm. um, year over year it was almost double the sales activity um, and then um, um, it was even uh, more activity from from January and all all activity was trending upwards both in in uh, volumes as well as the pricing was starting to rise again Okay, and, so uh, where does that leave us then? Well, with March, it's a, it's a confusing month because although COVID was was starting to to come into our into our world uh, in early March, and the stock market had already come off, we still saw transactional uh, transaction volumes escalating for the first ten days of March. But then the uh, the last two weeks of March, it's fallen right off. So the overall average is showing that it was up. From, from February, but all of that activity was mostly in the first half of March. So what does that say for what is selling right now, if anything? It's, it's too hard to know because um, the numbers are not available on a day-by-day basis. Um, but, you know, the physicality of, of, of um, real estate is important. So if, if someone buying, buying a home, um, they do need to, to see it physically or, or shop around and look at their options. And and that that is really difficult now for for most people. Um, our business is is um, in selling new condominium uh, developments throughout Greater Metro Vancouver. And mm. All of our showrooms are shut down, and even individual houses and and um, uh, uh, open houses, for example, uh, those are also. Um, uh, not available right. to people. But Cameron, isn't, is the market adapting at all though, right? Because like we've seen retailers having to adapt. We Restaurants have had to adapt to takeout. What is the real estate market doing then to adapt? Yeah, there's lots of, lots of uh, tools to put information in people's hands. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we, we've always seen things such as virtual tours and, and information uh, accessible to people online. And, and that of course is escalating. So uh, there's a rush to, to have more information available online um, and you know, our firm, for example, is building a whole platform where we can not just um, uh, have people to be able to, to see the real estate, but that we can interact with them up with a sales individual, someone that can actually have a conversation and and you know help answer their questions and help educate them on the on the real estate. But nevertheless, that will inform the, the public. But what is really happening with 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 this disruption is is consumer confidence is is coming up. Yeah. People are losing their jobs and and. Uh, it's affecting their, their families and many, many families are at home with, with, uh, with children, schooling, and there's, there's just so much uncertainty and fluidity with the situation that people are just sitting tight. So this is, I think, less about, about the logistics of selling real estate, and it's much more about what's going on with, with people's minds and just, just how difficult and disruptive and painful this really is for people. Right. So once again, it sounds like though the market is just going to have to wait this one out. Yes. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> there is, uh, uh, as you pointed out earlier, this this uh, incredible demand that we have as an underlying fundamental, and the country is growing rapidly. You know, we have a an aging population. We're going to continue to to uh, see strong immigration into into Canada, and 
uh, we as, as I always say, and as as we all know, that you know Vancouver and Canada is one of the best places, if not the best place, to live in the world, and that that pressure will always be there. So what's that? informing us is, is that when we do return to it, I call it a new normal because I think it's going to be, um, uh, you know, disruptive for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But as we do return to a new normal of our lives, uh, Vancouver is going to be a, a real spotlight as, as a place to, to want to live. Well, Cameron, I enjoy your glass half full attitude. I think people <laughs> need to hear that right now. So listen, well, can, thank well, you. Very, I mean, it's hard. It's, it, it is really difficult to, to think about silver linings in these, in these really difficult times. Um, we all know so many people that are that are being affected right now today, yeah. um, and and I, we don't know how how quick it will return. Um, it could take some time, or it most likely will take some time. But um, but if we think long term and we think about yeah. Um, how Canada is is um, is reaching out to our neighbors and, and the sense of community that we have it makes me proud to be Canadian. And it's those it's that cultural force that that adds to Canada being um, one of the top destinations in the world for people to live. And so long term, I think people can understand that real estate is going to be incredibly demanded in this country. Well, on that note, Cameron, thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you, Sammy. Have a good morning. You too. That is Cameron McNeil, partner and executive director at McNeil Lalonde, associate real estate service providers, talking about the long-term outlook. And he said, that's what real estate you have to do right now with real estate. Take the long-term vision for this, not the short-term vision, because the short-term, as with everything else right now, is incredibly disrupted. This is CKNW Mornings. Now, listen, we are all revising our budgets these days, right? We're cutting out everything except for the absolutely essential items. So shouldn't local governments also be doing the same? We know that some cities like Delta and Vancouver, possibly Surrey later today, have announced layoffs already. In fact, we'll be talking to the Delta mayor about that coming up in about 15 minutes time. But in other places, they are going ahead with projects that have been on the books. For instance, let's talk about West Vancouver. Their council just voted to actually go ahead with installing a permanent safety fence at the West Vancouver Community Centre. But get this, the original budget for this fence was $45,000. They now believe the final cost is going to be double that at $85,000, and they still voted to go ahead with it. Let's talk more about this with Councillor Craig Cameron from West Vancouver. Councillor Cameron, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. Why go ahead with this project? Well, actually, uh, I voted against going ahead with the project for the reasons you alluded to. I think we're living in a completely different economic world right now. And this isn't uh, an expenditure that we should be making at this time. Plus, I thought we could... If we were going to make it, we could put it out to tender again, and we'd come back with a, a much lower bid than we got the first time, which uh, was, of course, before the coronavirus crisis. But um, the majority of our council, four members, voted in favor of it, uh, I guess just because they, they, they thought it was going to be a waste of time and effort to uh, resubmit the bid and that it was a safety matter uh, in terms of children playing on that lawn beside a, a busy thoroughfare and wanting to ensure that they don't um, wander from the lawn into traffic. Right, but nobody's there right now, right? Because it's a community center and it's probably closed. Well, exactly. And I, and I suppose if I was uh, thinking from my colleagues, they would, uh, I, I suppose they would say, 
that eventually the community center is going to reopen again, you know, hopefully by summer, and that, that children, there will be programming on that lawn for kids, and that they were just looking forward to that time. I guess I'm just more focused on the more immediate concerns we have about the budget. All right. You mentioned the, how this went. So it was put out to tender. Only one one company bid on it, and it was that $85,000 price. And so, as you said, you suggested doing this again, and you think some, some other prices might come in, some other bids might come in. Well, I mean, right now, there's absolutely no doubt that in almost every sector, there's a slowdown. And uh, Vancouver's construction industry has been marked by a, a great deal of activity in the last well, decade. And so prices for bids uh, haven't been as low as they normally would be uh, because there's uh, it's been a lot of jobs and not that many contractors. Well, I think it's the other way around now where there's probably not very many people spending money on construction projects, and there's probably a bunch of people who, if they can still work, would love to uh, get to work. So I think the pencils would be sharper. But, I mean, quite frankly, I just don't think we should go ahead with the project at all right now given that if we look at $85,000, that amount of money would allow us to keep one or two uh, staff on uh, that we ordinarily uh, might have to let go uh, because of budget tightening. We've already laid off 450 people. I know you alluded to Vancouver and Delta. Mm -hmm. We've already laid off 450 people uh, more than a week ago, and we're looking at... uh, at, re- at reviewing all of our spending in every single area because our revenues have just cratered. Everything except for property taxes and utility fees basically is, is pretty much gone right now. And so we had a budget increase that we passed before the COVID crisis, and we've actually said that we're going to re- uh, review that. And so we've delayed passing of the budget until uh, April 20th, which is the latest we could do. under the legislation, uh, and we're looking basically at every single uh, item line by line and seeing what we can defer, uh, cancel, delay. We're we're putting off all new hires, etc. So it's it's a completely, as I said, it's a completely different world now, and I think we have to act accordingly. And quite frankly, I want to save as many critical uh, city jobs as I can, uh, in this in this crisis. So you're saying West Vancouver is in the same boat as all other municipalities right now? Well, yeah, we might even be in a, in a worse boat because we don't have any commercial, uh, we have very little commercial tax base. We have no industrial tax base. Uh, we're, 93% of our uh, taxpayer tax base comes from the residential taxpayers. And what we're hearing from men, them is they're going through financial hardship uh, on various fronts, their businesses are suffering, yeah. and they're unemployed. And what are they to do? We're hearing from them, please expand the property tax deferral program. Please allow us some leniency on when we have to pay our taxes. The last thing we can do is raise taxes at this point. So the only other thing we can do is cut. And yet we have a lot of essential services we have to maintain, water, police, fire, sewage, these things have to continue, and we have to pay those critical uh, workers. So uh, we're between a rock and a hard place. It sure sounds like it. Councillor Cameron, thanks for your time on this. No problem. That is Craig Cameron, a councillor from West Vancouver, where they've already laid off 450 people, and he's questioning some of the expenditures that council has uh, given approval to. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line. This is CKNW Mornings. 
Well, if you had any doubt as to how unprecedented these times are, just take a look at the layoffs that are happening at the municipal level. This is something in these numbers that is virtually unheard of. We just talked about West Vancouver, but we also know that the city of Vancouver has temporarily laid off up to 1,500 employees. And over in Delta, they've laid off 500 staff members as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak. So how much trouble are our cities in? Joining us now to talk more about that is the Mayor of Delta, George Harvey. Mayor Harvey, thank you for being here this morning. Oh, thanks for having me on. So tell me, where are these layoffs coming from? What area? Uh, mostly in the parks recreation area, as you know, as other cities have, we've closed our rec centers. And um, so th- we have actually, uh, except for what we have coming in with regards to utility bills, which we've deferred until June first for payment, and our property taxes, uh, all other revenue is dry up. So there's nothing. So, we're, we're, so we actually have a revenue uh, difficulties right now, as other businesses have. And uh, we unfortunately, we've had to look at laying off uh, our employees. Have you, when they're back, um, I just don't know. Have you ever heard of a situation like this happening before? Like, I've never heard of any kind of layoffs of this kind at a municipal level before. No, it's unprecedented and, uh, you know, very sad. And uh, But it's, uh, the economic, you know, the, the follow-up from this COVID-19 is going to be how difficult economic recovery is going to be for everybody. And uh, in Delta, I've got our employees working on uh, financial planning modeling and we'll be taking a report to council in the next few weeks, uh, looking at how we can actually reduce our... T- uh, we had a proposed 3.5% increase in taxes, and we've got to lower that. So you're saying this is going to change everything for the next couple of years, even after the situation is over? Well, absolutely. And how many of our uh, small businesses uh, in Delta that are closed now, how many will actually reopen when this is over? Uh, it's questionable. Uh, we're having difficulties, as it was, with... Uh, you know, they had a uh, minimum wage increases. They've had uh, different types of taxes increased. Uh, so no, it's just it's going to be a real struggle. And that's what I'm really worrying about is they followed when this is all over. Have you talked to other mayors about this? Are you hearing similar stories? Uh, it's it's uh, we've got a very good mayors group going, and uh, we're in contact almost weekly. And we're, we do Zoom now, uh, so we're talking together and working on common problems, uh, giving suggestions. Uh, the other thing I've been doing is having every week a virtual town hall meeting. Uh, every Thursday, and it's been extremely uh, informative for us and ability for us to get a message out and field questions from people. There's so many questions out there, and this is a, a way that they can people can phone in and talk to myself and Chief Dubord and other individuals that we've had on uh, to give them some direction. And what are we've some of those? A, what are some of those questions set, that people have? Well, uh, when is when is this going to be over? Uh, how, what if I can't pay my taxes? Uh, where do I go for EI? So uh, we've actually set up a call center in Delta. And so we won't have the answers to all the questions, but we'll research them and advise people that phone in where they, where they can get that information. But it's a very stressful time out in all our communities across Canada. What about the big projects then, Mayor Harvey? What is Delta doing about some of those things that you'd had on the list that were scheduled to be done? Well, we have to look at that list, and that's a very good question. We have to look at that list and say, hey, can we take a time out from this? Does it have to be done this year and require uh, taxes collected from this year? That's that's what we're going over now. Is what you know? What can, what is our new priorities? It's a new ball game now, and uh, we have to relook and refocus as to how we're going to be going going further. So some of the projects we have to get done, which are critical to our infrastructure. Uh, but again, our staff are bringing back recommendations and ones that we can instead of doing over in the next five years, we'll look at see if we can do them over the next seven or eight years. How far do you think this setbacks kind of infrastructure projects in Metro Vancouver? 
uh, you know, Metro Vancouver is uh, working on that. Our, our chair, our good chair, Seb Dollywell, has just struck a COVID-19 economic uh, task force with all the mayors. And so uh, collectively, we'll be making recommendations back uh, to the Metro Vancouver board as a whole as to how uh, these their projects can be uh, perhaps looked at over a longer term versus right now. Right, because it seemed like you know we were finally making progress at Metro Vancouver, didn't it? That the mayors had come together, there was a list, there were priorities. Uh, what is this going to look like when all is said and done, like for all of us? Well, it's not even just Metro. We uh, met with TransLink, uh, Mayor's Council for TransLink, and of course working with the TransLink board, and that whole area has to be looked at. Um, so it's it's from a from a political point of view of elected officials, it's going to be a crucial two years. Um, before our next election, where this this group of mayors and elected officials have to work together to get over this economic problem that's going to hit us. So at those TransLink meetings, then, does that mean that the TransLink projects, that 10-year plan, is all of that up in the air now? It's all being discussed. And when do you think some of these decisions will be made? Well, they're going to have to be made fairly quickly. Uh, so again, we're uh, in the, for example, the um, uh, Chair Dollywell's task force with the mayors on the economic recovery for Metro Vancouver, we're we're actually meeting every second Wednesday for a period of time. So uh, everything is happening very quickly, but I can, I just like to say as a mayor, I'm so proud of my fellow mayors and uh, how we're working together to look at this regionally and uh, try to give each other some uh, support and assistance and some, uh, some uh, answers to some questions that we may have that may be applicable to other cities, but we're working together and uh, we have to work together to get through this. Now, Mayor Harvey, this must be so incredibly difficult because even in the basic things that people turn to for the city to help them out with, perhaps food bank help or anything like that, are you, you're saying essentially the cities are unable to provide that right now? No, uh, our first step was, of course, uh, following the direction of the Provincial Medical Health Office or closing the rec centers, areas that we couldn't do proper physical se- you know, social separation. Uh, we've, done, we've done that now. So what we need to do is move into the other area of seeing how we can help people. Uh, we are providing a lot of assistance to our community services groups mm-hmm. and ensuring that people that we know that are isolated uh, are having food and, and, and volunteers provide groceries to them. So that's our, our phase that we're in now is sort of ensuring that those people that are vulnerable are looked after. So we're doing, a, we're doing a lot of work on that. And got to thank for all the you know, great people in Delta and used to live in Delta, mm-hmm. tremendous community. They've stepped forward. Uh, we, and, you know, every day we get more emails of people wanting to volunteer. Really? And so are you able to put them to work that way then? If they want to volunteer, there's there's a place for them to do that. Yes. And uh, we actually, you know, we're, we're working very hard on that. And uh, the staff that are at Delta working on, this, you know, our community services uh, situation are working hard to try to uh, make sure that all our community services groups uh, are receiving help. And uh, so we're working together on that. That's something we actually do very quietly. Uh, but I want to impress upon the community that we're not forgetting those people that need help. Well, that's actually a little bit of good news. I think people need to hear stories like that right now. Um, Mayor Harvey, thank you for your time. Thank you. Take care. You too. That is George Harvey, the mayor of Delta, not happy about the fact they're laying off 500 staff and they're hopeful they can hire everybody back. But they said these parks and rec staff, people who work in the community centers, they just, you heard them say it, they're frozen right now. They don't have any revenue. So they've got to make these deep, deep cuts all because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, But if you are interested in volunteering, then yes, get in touch with Delta City Hall and you can help out. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is CKNW Mornings.
All right, let's talk about something that is so important to people out there, and that is what we are doing with our seniors in care homes. And you know, it's not easy to put your loved one into a care home, and you'd like to think when they are there, they are being well looked after. But with the COVID-19 situation being the way it is, uh, many people are not able to even visit their loved ones anymore. So how are we keeping the spirits up of seniors? What are we doing to make sure they don't feel that isolation even more than they already do? Well, joining us now to talk more about how the industry is coping with this here in BC, it's Daniel Fontaine, CEO of the BC Care Provider Association. Daniel, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Sumi. I can't even imagine how difficult this time is for your industry. Are you hearing from different care homes all the time? Oh, yeah, every day. Um, It's a challenge for not only my own team with the BC Care Providers, but across the province, uh, the care providers themselves, the operators, the nurses, everyone on the front line. You know, we've been talking a lot about frontline uh, workers and and those impacted, and right now that is in long-term care homes. and uh, it's a very stressful time for sure for the uh, for the staff as well as for the families, as you mentioned, and for the seniors themselves. Very challenging. So what are the rules right now? If someone has a family member or a loved one in a home, uh, a seniors mm-hmm. care home, what are the rules? for? Can you even go visit them? Well, it's very limited. So essentially right now uh, we're not permitting in uh, visitors unless there are some compassionate reasons for doing that. And obviously, there are many people who are at end of life, and we don't want to prevent uh, someone from being uh, with their loved one at that period of time. But other than that, there's very limited reasons why we would be allowing people in, and that is for the safety of the residents. And as you indicated earlier, you know, care homes are really the one of the most vulnerable places anywhere yeah. on the planet with this COVID-19. It's like COVID-19 knows where to go. <laughs> you know, it gets into these places, and... It can be absolutely devastating. So we have to do absolutely everything we can to prevent COVID-19 from coming in. And if it does come in from, from spreading within the care setting uh, itself. Okay, so how does, how does somebody find out the information? And do you have to call the care home to find out what the individual rules are? Yeah, most families are aware. Obviously, there's a very good network and discussion between the families and the care providers. They they know the care providers usually by first name and they, they've got their contacts. So most families are all aware of the fact that there are limitations. But if, they, if they're not, if they have any questions, by all means, absolutely contact the care home itself and it will provide you with information around your ability to access. But we are looking at other technologies. We are looking at other ways, as Dr. Henry said, to be able to keep people connected. And um, I'm really thrilled. I look back in the last few years, we were running a program. We we lobbied and advocated with the province of British Columbia to set up a program to actually improve the quality of life for seniors. Mm-hmm. And we had a $10 million program. And I look back at the last few years and the number of checks that I was signing and sending off funds to care homes to install, uh, strengthen their Wi-Fi systems, to uh, purchase uh, tablets across the province. We uh, set up music rooms. All the things we did on the quality of life programming in the last three years are really, I'm, I'm being told, are really having a huge impact now in care homes being able to keep connected with families that they would not have been able to do otherwise. So how does that help them do it? Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so that program, what happens was everybody uh, that was running a care home, publicly funded care home in the province, they could apply for a, uh, an allotment of funding of about $500 per resident. And that funding would come through the BC, the application would come through us at the BC Care Providers and we would look at it and they could apply for quality uh, programming and quality equipment. So many care homes uh, didn't have Wi-Fi systems or they were very poor. Many of them did not have tablets. 
Um, they couldn't communicate in case of a pandemic. So we had literally hundreds of applications across the province uh, over the last... The program is now, uh, it's run out. It's finished as of March 31st. But that program allowed for care homes to upgrade themselves so that if there was a pandemic, that families could stay connected and they, they would have the Wi-Fi capability to be able to stream you know, through Zoom or Skype or whatever they wanted to do to connect with families. And I can tell you, I'm so thrilled that we, we made those investments over the last three years because people are telling me that it's paying off. Right. So you don't necessarily have to stand outside the window, as we have seen so many people no. doing right now. No, you don't. But you know what? That's, that's lovely, too. And that the being able to, everyone's being very creative. We've had, um, you know, we've had some, some young bands and some school bands coming and playing outside the windows for uh, music. We've had families coming in for birthdays with, you know, waving hearts and that kind of stuff. I mean, the creativity is just, I tell you, every day I I go into work as stressful as it is the last few weeks. I, uh, you know, I saw a video come through my email this morning, some uh, care aide sang a beautiful song to one of the residents and they recorded it and they posted it out and everyone's doing everything they can to make sure that the seniors remain uh, active and that they remain, um, you know, socially uh, uh, interactive with, with everyone. And, and I think you and I have talked about this, Simi. We know that the research shows that social isolation is the equivalent for seniors uh, of smoking about 15 cigarettes a day, the Oof, negative yeah. health impacts. So we, we, I know it's stressful for the workers and, and, and stuff, but they're doing their best to try to make sure that people can stay connected with uh, with their loved ones. Are there ways to get that stuff set up that you were talking about there, Daniel? Mm-hmm. Like if it hadn't been done ahead of time, mm-hmm. are there ways that we can encourage our seniors care home where our loved one is to do some of this? Yeah, it's a little challenging right now, Simi, given the limited access that people have to and from the care home. So to suddenly set up and, and go in and set up the Wi-Fi systems now might be a bit of a challenge. But a lot of the care homes now do have that Wi-Fi. So they, and they do have those tablets and they are doing their best. So if you are trying to connect with, with a loved one and you can't physically go there, check to see if they do have the tablets and check to see if they can connect you via technology. And uh, you'll be surprised that a number of them now do. And so to try that. It's not perfect. Uh, I know even myself, I'm uh, communicating with my mom and with other my family as well on that. And it's new for me. It's not something that I've done before. But you know, last Friday, we had a little technology party. We had a bunch of friends on Zoom, and we, we had a blast. We actually really enjoyed Aww. it. It was different, but we had fun. And I think that that's the spirit we have to look at this right now, that use that technology and make the most of it, and uh, and we'll be back to, to normal programming, hopefully sooner rather than later. <laughs> we hope so. Fingers crossed yeah. on that. Daniel, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Timmy. Anytime. That's Daniel Fontaine, Chief Executive Officer for the BC Care Providers Association. You know, Daniel is one of several guests that we've had so far today who've said that, who've said, you know, we're, we're, everything's going to be fine when we get through this. And I, I so applaud that from everybody out there because it's easy to get really depressed about this and kind of fall into that black hole. But for people to stay positive, I know it's hard, but I think it's important for everybody's mental health right now to think, no, no, there's going to be a light at the end of the the tunnel. We're doing the right thing now, but things will get better. This is CKNW Mornings. You know, people have been self-isolating for a couple of weeks now, or at least they should have been self-isolating for a couple of weeks now. But every once in a while, you probably, you need a little fresh air, right? A walk with physical distancing does a lot of people some good, but you can't just go anywhere for that walk. 
Hence this next story. Our next guest says, sure, find a quiet place to do that. Find a quiet place to exercise, but a cemetery is not the right place. Yes, you heard that right. Joining us now, Glenn Hodges, the manager of Mountain View Cemetery. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Shimmy. What has been happening at Mountain View? Uh, wow. Uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, it's the activity in terms of people coming to the cemetery, uh, walking, jogging, riding their bikes, um, wandering around. Uh, it, the, the traffic's just uh, increased tremendously, uh, causing all sorts of uh, concerns for staff and, and visitors to the cemetery. So you're saying people are treating it like a park? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the cemetery's always had, uh, and it has some, uh, you know, leisure sort of, uh, people out here during normal times, but, uh, and that's somewhat manageable, but, the the increase in the activity over the last couple of weeks, it's like the word's gotten out and the secret's out and now it's just become like a destination. Okay. So what kind of activity are we talking about? What are you seeing here? Oh, just, I mean, so we don't have, we have roads in the cemetery. We're an active cemetery, so our vehicles and equipment are using those roads. We've got people with headphones on, um, oblivious to the traffic behind them, walking in the middle of the roads, people riding bikes, kids running scooters down the hills, um, kids climbing and having fun in the dirt pile and climbing on headstones, uh, cyclists driving through here super quickly, uh, just buzzing around and people wandering all over, dogs, a huge increase increase in dogs on and off leash. Uh, it's pretty much anything that people are doing outside, they're uh, feeling free to do so at the cemetery. Glenn, I have to admit I'm a bit speechless in hearing this story because this is, after all, a cemetery. What, what, like, what do workers say to people who are letting their kids climb all over headstones? And what happens when somebody is coming to pay their respects to one of those places? Yeah, so so that's that's part of it. We're, we're sort of, it's, they're dumbfounded and they're aghast and, and it's becoming a real issue. So uh, again, we're, you know, we appreciate that, you know, it's an, it seems like a nice open space and kind of quiet, but, um, you know, it's, it's Mountain View. It's not Mountain View Park. It's not Mountain View Park and Cemetery. It's Mountain View Cemetery, full stop. And people who um, who are engaging in those sorts of activities have a choice um, to do them all over other places in the city. Um, we're simply asking that they choose not to do it at the cemetery, to leave this one special place in the city um, for those who are grieving and have lost someone. Uh, and especially during these uh, highly sensitive and uncertain times, um, the impact on families now who are being delayed the opportunity or denied the opportunity to be with someone when they're dying because they're restricted, that person's restricted. You can't have a funeral service like you typically would, a memorial service, a celebration of life. That's delayed or postponed. You can't bring all of your friends to the cemetery to place your loved one in the cemetery because of restrictions, so it's deferring and delaying all this stuff. Folks that come to the cemetery regularly to visit their loved ones may not be able to get here as often. So that one special opportunity they get, and when they pull into the cemetery, they see people walking dogs, kids on bikes, mm. cruising all over the place. It really just sets a, 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 a just a, an inappropriate tone for, um, for those people that are coming to visit, and, and I think reflects poorly on um, on us as a, as a society in these sort of times. Now, what about funerals? Are they still going on there at Mountain View? 
Yeah, so so we we've had some uh, defers and delays, of course, primarily with cremation services. But um, we had uh, we had uh, a funeral, a casket burial on Wednesday, two yesterday, and we have two more today. And as we were getting the the service ready on Wednesday, people seemed oblivious to it. So they're riding their bikes, walking, you know, and nobody's mm-hmm. around. And then all of a sudden. Ten seconds later, the funeral car and the coach and the family arrive and they come around the corner and there's people everywhere on bikes and our staff are getting disrupted while they're mowing and trimming. Um, That sort of equipment can shoot rocks and things all over the place and kids are driving their bikes and riding around all over. It's just becoming a real challenge to look out for for the safety of these folks. And you see kids climbing on headstones. Um, I know the playgrounds are closed, but boy, you fall over in a cemetery, um, you're going to hit granite, and that hurts. No kidding. So uh, is there signage that you put up? Are you considering doing well, more? Well, yeah. So we, we've now had to go. So we've got some signage that will be going up today. We've got some videos that we've done. So we're uh, telling people to stay away from the cemetery. That'll be on the perimeter to take the luge activity elsewhere. We've also now had to develop interior signage to let people know that they need to yield to all staff and, uh, and equipment and also to advise them of when a service is going on in an area, asking them to please keep their distance, stay quiet, and be respectful. Um, some of the situations where we have, you know, interments in the columbaria walls, we can have someone on one side of the wall, uh, one of our staff and a couple of family trying to have a nice quiet service, and then a cyclist will drive by on the other side or a couple people talking on the phone or talking to each other and kids running around, oh, and they're oblivious to something happening six feet on the other side of a wall. But Glenn, what about when you do say, like, or does any staff member say something to say, Excuse me, please, a little respect here. Um, Again, we're getting not too many of our staff are actually engaging in that. They're just trying to keep themselves safe and stay quiet. A couple of our key staff will approach people and inform them. It's a... It's a mixed reaction. Some people you know, seem to understand. Other people start to try and say, well, yeah, but uh, you know, we're all stuck at home and, and we can share this space and nobody's around. And, um, and, and it's just, it's, we it's, don't engage in any kind of a discussion or debate over it. Um, and there's just too many people for us to even stop and advise. So, so you just want to get that word out right now? Yeah, it's, the people that come here, Um, to honor and pay respect to the loved ones, do not have a choice. This is where they are. This is the only place they can come. Every other person coming here has a choice, and they are choosing to come to the cemetery. We're asking them to choose somewhere else, at least during this uncertain period. There's a heightened sensitivity, a heightened awareness, and a heightened fear, uh, and greater impacts around death and dying. And it's not just affecting those with COVID-19. If you're ill of some other illness, you are still restricted, your family members, from coming to the hospital, coming to the care home. People are dying alone. People are being denied their natural and normal process of grief and loss. And it's disrupting all of that and making it very sensitive for everybody. All right, we'll try to get that word out there. But Glenn, good luck. And listen, thank you to alerting us on this. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That is Glenn Hodges, the manager of Mountain View Cemetery. They are frustrated, as you can tell from Glenn's voice there. Uh, too many people exercising or treating the cemetery as a playground, even while they have funerals going on. Come on, people. We can do better than that, right? We can behave a little better than that. A little respect there, please. Uh, so if you